You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Buenas noches. I'd like to warmly, warmly, warmly welcome you to City Lights Live. This is the, uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been to City Lights books, but in the pre, pre-pandemic days, we used to have these wonderful poet and writing gatherings up in the poetry room and everyone would come and it would get really sweaty in there and poets and writers would write and now because of the pandemic we've moved our our events to the zoom mundo the zoom world so here we are in the comfort of our own homes still upholding the city lights tradition and tonight is going to be so amazing we are so excited to have these two very special poets with us for those of you that don't know we are celebrating michael palmer's book release Little Elegies for Sister Satan. Of course you know this. Of course you know this. Uh, This event is being celebrated in conjunction with New Directions as well as Night Boat Books because one of the Night Boat authors is going to be in conversation and reading with Michael today. So we also have the one and only Erica Hunt celebrating her book. Even though it came out in November, time is stretching the (laughs) pandemic. So this is still a book celebration for Jump the Clock. So I hope you, you're all as excited as I am because I'm a little giddy. I'm, I'm a little excited about this. I got to admit, I may gush a little bit, but that's, that's all right, right? That's all right. So um, let me just say that the poets are going to be, they're going to be reading their works. At the end, they're going to be in a Q&A conversation. So um, yeah, like I said, this is a City Lights live event celebrating uh, poets, writers, ideas, thoughts, all that good stuff that City Lights has uh, been known for. So I just want to kindly remind you all that City Lights is back open for business. And if you can't come visit us in person, the second best way to support this is to buy books online. So please, if you don't have these wonderful books yet, buy them from us and uh, check out our, our inventory. We got a lot of other amazing books. And if you are in the Bay Area, please come by and see us. We're doing the pandemic safe distancing. We got the masks. The bookstore misses you. We miss you. So come and check us out, okay? All right, enough of my talking. I'm sure you're sick of it. Let me read some quick bios and get to the poets, because that's why we're here, right? So the first, the poet book release that we're celebrating tonight, Michael Palmer. For those of you that don't know, let me just do a quick bio of this gentleman. Michael Palmer is an American born in New York City in 1943 and a long residence in San Francisco. Nearly all of Palmer's poetry is published by New Directions, including at Passages, Selected Poems, The Promises of Glass, Codes Appearing, and Company of Moths, as well as a couple others. He is the translator of works by Emmanuel Pocuad, Vicente Hudubrio, and Alexei Parshkikov, among others. And uh, Michael is also the editor of Code of Signals, Recent Writings and Poetics. For over 30 years, Michael has collaborated with the Margaret Jenkins Dance Company. All right, yes. And joining Michael in conversation and in the reading is Erica Hunt. Erica Hunt is a poet and essayist, author of Local History, Arcade, Peace Logic, Veronica, A Suite in X Parts, and Jump the Clock, new and selected poems published by Night Books in November of 2020. Erica's poems and essays have appeared in Bomb, Boundary 2, Brooklyn Rail, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Poetics Journal, Tripwire, Recluse in the American Tree, and Conjunction. With uh, Don Lundy Martin, Hunt is the editor of an anthology of new writing by Black women, Letters to the Future. Yes. 
Hunt has received awards from the Foundation for Contemporary Art, the Fund for Poetry, and the Digerasi Foundation, and is a past fellow of Duke University, University of Cape Town Program in Public Policy. Erica Hunt teaches at Brown University. All right, y'all, please give a warm, warm, warm Zoom welcome, show some jazz hands, jump around, yell, give it up for Michael Palmer and Erica Hunt. Good evening, everyone. We're very, very glad to be reading together. And uh, Michael and I have a, a friendship that many of you might be familiar with. Michael was my poetry teacher many years ago, but a very uh, formative poetry teacher for me at San Francisco State University. And many of the things that Michael introduced me to still live with me as a poet. Um, I was telling Michael that this book, The Shape of Time by George Kubler, which this is really an art historian's discussion of series and sequence has stayed with me all these years and is so useful for teaching. But, but Michael and I also talked about lots of poetry. We, we talked about the modernist and um, you know, it's, it's deeply ingrained. <laughs> so we decided that this evening we would switch off and take turns reading to each other and to you. So I think we, not even on a coin toss, but by just friendly agreement, decided I would start, and I'll start with two poems, and then Michael will pick up, and we'll go back and forth like that, trading poems. The order of the story. Imagine yourself walking into a room, the exercise suggests, and then describe how you fill the doorway, the direction you dress in, the way you walk out of the frame. Imagine finding stones, the inscriptions that predicted you. Invent the language now. Invent the language as if each inflection belonged to you instead of containing you or treating you as if you were a commotion in the path of progress. Invent a language to describe the doorway in the person, eyes growing accustomed to the dark till the dark has layers peeling off in shiny blue slices. Here and there flashes as the tongue licks over the heart. Describe the figure the doorway supports. Inside this trope comes declensions, all the detail her mortal frame can claim, stick, and join. When the mind's orbit has faded into thoughts disguised as recalculation, where she shows signs of adjustment. She's a walking chainsaw in crinoline and spandex, a smile outlined by name. Describe where the heart goes in and out of her, where the exits are marked. Indicate which team she's on. Oh, she's the team of moms for the love of them. However, the bread gets sliced. Describe the butts in the doorway, in the doorway and everywhere in between, where she trips or slides down them into some other contingency, a sentence with a dangling clause. She must be the figure in the vicinity of her experience with this distracting claims on her attention. Capital letters inflate routine without which days curve away. Describe the exile where landscape is mute, muffled under plexiglass beneath a ball that does not drop. 
She is a person in the doorway who feels the pull of earth, a mighty planet third from the sun, where small talk is offered as evidence that one fits someplace, where the characters have names, open and shut cases of assumed identity and hold down their spots in a book. Verse, it's all in profile. What the shadows cast on the floor, can't you see? When pushed to the wallpaper, our habits seem trivial. A record of the body's lost accidents. We found that we could not be strangers anymore, nor could we pose randomly in our affection, ducking behind a turn of mood. Instead, we carried ourselves unrehearsed into the arms of the unexpected continuity, using our sense to head where we are going. Every story has its campaign to win, missing numbers, interfering digits. We work from the beginning to the back end, tracing where the author left her prints on the text, her surplus divinity. And when the right word appears out of nowhere, it leads back here. What was the word we were looking for, Michael? Fire, in this light, we appear to be doing what we want, waving the baton with the mind. If you want to move your feet, find something there over the bridge of your nose to attract you. Choose your own words to hear yourself speak. Thank you. So uh, this uh, book, Little Elegies um, for Sister Satan is divided into three sections. And um, I'll begin by reading from the title section. And then maybe I'll just, uh, as we take turns, make some selections from the other sections as time allows. But I'll begin at the beginning, as Gertrude Stein always advised. First elegy. Singing is prohibited in this cafe. Torture is permitted in this cafe. I'll have a double, thank you, in three-quarter time, sister. May I call you sister? You, almond-eyed, unsmiling, in this ever-changing light that cloaks the feral world. These dancers, do you know them? Do they think, as they glide and spin, of what is to be and what has been? Do you know their names? And if so, do their names change from earliest hours to late and day to day? Do their wounds show as they mimic the music's path? Sister, I apologize, but I must ask Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Abu Ghraib, Uradur, Terezin, Deir Yassin, Veldiv, Vorkuta, Magadan, that waltz, that dance, among the cafe candles and beyond the fogged windows, the endless allee of lightning-scarred trees whispering fractured words for none to understand. All the beautiful names, sister, the infinite names roll off the tongue, innumerable as the stars that frolic in the sea. Second elegy, sister, is it not time for us to learn to speak now that the infernal machines have captured the breathing word? Now that drones fill the sky over Santiago de Chuco, Central Park, and Unter den Linden, 
Is it finally too late in this welcome winter rain to cross the singing bridge to that place where memories of the future bend like cypress limbs under ancient snow? Where the plague years melt away and the shrill voices of children explode from the mist with nothing but pain and praise to sing as if one and the same, like two bodies joined in a last embrace. And these cypresses, ministers of mourning, how is it we applaud them in their grace? Invisible hands. This is part of a work called Peace Logic. It's a small book that was a uh, meditation on consumption <laughs> and commodities. And this was sort of the, I suddenly broke into doggerel. Anyway, here it is, <laughs> invisible hands. Trade down the block or round the world, down the food chain from forward to back to escape the air grabbing heat. The crop fails, the monsoon in June, a fluke of the weather, a storm of flowers whipped into a rain that claims the last village. The residents head out to the city to make money. They never make the money they seek. Instead, they make keychains, sneakers, baseball gloves, flame-proof nightwear, transmission, stereos, computer chips, gap jeans, rugby polo shirts, dolls with the features of North Americanos or slave girls or Indian princesses living their lives in legend, unlike their own except for an unlocatable middle. Just in time, the chain continues, unbroken, to unwind the thing after the thing, a line of never broken nouns. And if it breaks, we fix it quick so the chain can never be broken. Even if it shouts out, it's a chorus set to shovel. The rocks never seem to disappear, but become dust, a dust that lasts from morning to morning, chained to a logic we are doomed to follow. Invisible hands, rice the peas, spice the rice, circle the turns, turn on the presses, raise the letters, letter the spaces, address the edges before they bang into one another, mask the connections. Invisible hands, milk the spill, ship the ink, jump the rope, rip the chute, lay the trail, time the tear, eye the glass, bat the wing, bat the lash, brown the tan, fiddle the sticks, ride the herd, read the horde. Hear the roar, read the dim, damp, the rhyme, rhyme, the orange toast, the storage. Invisible hands carry the thread, thread the vowels, stall the calls, pour the molds, powder the walls, dent the bins, stamp the bills, core the questions, come of the nouns, time the charts, corner the squares, square those curves, loosen those jaws, spill the beans, spill the cats, feed the beasts. It's years before a family will follow off the edge of the ramp into this putative new life where the past has vanished and the present is all time charts marked, of course, invisibly, only visibly hot in a red dark of selective vision in plain sight and out of sight. You see one hand tries to clap the other as in the phrase, Give me some skin, the slap of palms, right hand to right hand empty. See, no weapon here. We come in peace. We come out of the hypnotic circle that orbits and holds us in constant bind of stick em up, lap dancing, out of rigged destiny across the violent 
border of property and oblivion until hands can be detected again in the brick and brack of the world. It's a hard poem to read. <laughs> Proof. Proof that we live in a broken world and a broken world is unlivable. Proof that the carrot turns into the stick and vice versa. Proof that seems normal, self-sufficient. Proof that we sometimes destroy things that are broken and can't be fixed and sometimes fix things because to live with them broken is unthinkable. Proof that we switch roles sometimes to destroy things that are broken and can't be fixed and sometimes to live with things that are broken because to fix them would be unthinkable. Proof that we learn to live with the unthinkable. Rectangles and tangerine, orange and persimmon fall into place, take our name, simulate full hands. Proof that having full hands leaves no time for questions. Proof that we can't help grabbing the sharp end even when all the warnings are there. Proof that we find the hot water and the, the hot water finds us. Proof in the tongue of ruin and burn, fluent in the language of minus. The trees have fallen and the forest has come apart. Proof then by reading it on paper, proof in unmarked bills, line by line our eyes fill up with witness. The mornings were as clear as glass. Can stones be far behind? Third elegy. The clock is a fiction, dear sister, yet we live within it. Sister, its arms are ours, and the fiction is as real as a rose in a steel dust. And you will recall, dear sister, that each of us is the sum of the two preceding numbers in the talismanic series, and that this ever-expanding, radiant, and more than perfect spiral will swallow us, so said was it Zoroaster from a distant cliff, his spider arms outstretched on the face of a death's head clock? And it is there within the span of those arms that we recall what we were not. We were not what we thought to be and to become, not the architects of desire, not the thieves of fire, nor gardeners, nor plumbers, nor workers in steel, only the painted puppets of parallel lives, only the uninvited guests, ghosts at the beggar's banquet. Elegy for whom or for what we watched the frothing tide gather time in and it meant nothing at all to us then or at most some spare thing that could not be freely said. A wound of salt laced water and a gasping mouthful of sand while death to those measures which draw us together. Fourth elegy. At last, the perfect weather is unending, even as the ice storms prove unending, even as what was once eternal departs like a brief smile, as we swing from life to life, like sad-eyed clowns in white face and baggy pants, balancing on red balloons between the simultaneous worlds, the parallel worlds we have yet to name. 
Sister, did the lords of war once offer you a name? Was it the same one they offered me at the point of a gun? Did we live then on telling unspeakable tales over a thousand and one unending nights? Lift the ice and the sun to your lips, sister, and to mine and sing the words between the lines. Hmm. So I keep changing my mind uh, what to read as you read. No, it's okay. It's a, I, I had wanted an element of spontaneity to sort of try to match um, tone, but here we go. Someone matching your description. <laughs> Someone matching your description. You wake me up, Veronica, to escort you to the door to the unknown, and I am slapped awake and paperless. My eyeglasses abandoned on the ledge, startled, a tongue triggered dry, staring into eyes emptied of the exact shape of mercy. They are ice. You, Veronica, are beside yourself. Your face is a burned down house. Count me in so I can walk with you, Veronica, though you are mostly alone, even dry-eyed at your own funeral. Even being of two minds is not enough. When Jacob wrestled with an angel, I wonder who wrestles with me or you even to argue reasonable doubt when I know they never leave their guns. They carry them in churches, into bars, into courtrooms. They put scare quotes around the world. They are never mistaken. <laughs> there are no words for mistake, no words for mistake, no, no reason for indefinite register. They speak in a prose that refuses to be tamed by thoughts inflection, always mad as hornets, as the front pocket inedible, stuck on the fear of deserved reprisal, the ax that never quite falls. Hold that thread, please. So they called a quarry, prey, footstool, and chattel, someone's back to stand on, to enable them to climb the ladder faster, to unletter the ladder faster, and limit equality to a single call, a single meaning, a single tongue, a simple song. For how long? There are no words for mistake. No obvious thread that binds the master to the missing supply of mastery. Even sleeping history's abolished fictions live on absent the bigot. Just one knowing what is known from before and knowing what the owners of copious knowing know without speaking and say without saying exactly. Be my scapegoat my sex toy, my just dessert, my bowl of candy, my profit, my pencil thought, my extinction. Ghost names. Veronica, whose ghost name is Vita, wept to be a grandmother at 35. For don't stones desire to be touched? Veronica, whose ghost name was Yvette, who other girls lay in wait to fight every day and was bitten by one fierce girl while other girls laughed so out of body they never noticed the bites scarring their own bituminous skin. Veronica, whose ghost name was Evelyn, was murdered by her husband for even a rock wants to dance and not to be hurled and broken, orphaning their children and children's children. Veronica, whose ghost name was Henrietta, brought from Antigua at 16 to warm a stone of a man almost three times her age, outlived him and her seven children. 
Veronica, whose ghost name is Martha, whose rage at martyrdom turned her arms into resting missiles, all new, never to cross. The heart moves from one side to the other, catastrophe, or it gets hit in the forehead or shoved, always out of nowhere, pulled by the reins, the reins of female obedience, killing us. V sticks out like a battered peace sign. V as in what victory? Like parted legs, an unexpected sharp corner. Mythology. Oh, Bobby, where are you going? Body of the earth, lost double, lost copy of the body, mute body of yesterday and tomorrow's shredded cloth. Oh, body. Where are you going in the fog of the body, in the mist of thought, in the body of another known and not? Oh body, have you watched the Dioscuroi dance as one body and two on the quantum tips of fire while an ensorcelled earth spins below? How many languages? How many limbs are scattered along the roads of this earth? How many sounds meeting their anti-sounds, how many books burning to light the way? How many pure believers to shatter the icons of the pure believers while the ensorcelled earth spins on a turtle's back? Our jaws churn to emit a song that will retune the body, return the body, dear silent earth, gone where? Sixth elegy. Here, sister, it can be said that goodbye means hello, day, night, far, near, here, where the rivers run uphill and the clouds lie still and your shadow, ghost sister, emits an incendiary light. Sister, we have ridden the mute centaurs and firebirds round and round in the dark and slowly learned to spell without words gauge the ebbs and swells of the untellable tale. Praise the infinite nameless tellers of tales swaying from the poplar's limbs. The wind belongs to them. To us, the breath, the frayed thread, the turn and return of the juggler's stolen song. Nothing to know, nothing to tell of the now and the then after all. I see the world is mad, sings Kabir, who knew neither ink nor pen as he wandered the islands of this earth where up is ever down and song has no sound. The poem I read earlier, somebody matching the description and the ghost names are from Veronica, which is a book length meditation on uh, the murder of uh, black sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, cousins, uncles, aunts, by um, the police. So it's a kind of a, it's a little somber, it is, it is a somber work and a lamentation. So I'll, I'll read a couple more from that. Upon another acquittal, a choreography of grief from Amy Till, Sabrina Fulton, Samira Rice, and Geneve Reed Veal. She had needed to heal, but she had promised her blues angled, slipped out, capsized, traveled a long distance underwater, 
the sun cast a blurry silence and looking refused border filled her mouth with scorch and when I saw her fall into herself, not her first grief, and crumple in an instant, knowing no justice will ever be found, could be found, where nothing is said out loud. And when it is said it or wailed, the something said is something that no one hears. Everyone, everything will be taken from you. Everything, even more than you know, will be taken away and it will sever you, make you swerve, stagger as if punched in the heart or in a part you can't easily name, talked over, punched into. So you pivot as if possible to get out of the way. I write as if words will suspend your fall, gentle you when there is no D, parting agony. I'm gonna shift a little. Um, fool for love. I cannot claim rigor or music blindfold or hormone heated hunger. I cannot claim ache, my bulb dimmed or exhausted. The binary phantom has stopped breathing calamity in my direction. I cannot claim destiny or a hole in the cards of singularity. A dull solitaire never wins or loses. I cannot claim habit haunts an empty chair or drives me to disestablished echo. I cannot claim arousal by flame, sputter, fire, drowned in crackle. I cannot claim amnesia, that abandoned plastic bag bursting testimonies by the curb discarded with damp coffee grounds. I cannot claim perfect enthusiasm. I grit my risk against high drama, yet flowers appear eye to eye. I cannot claim my grain is porous and thunder ready to soak in less heaven and more earth, a ton of mud. I cannot claim my double won't appear when I least expect her. Throwing a tantrum and galoshes, following her thumbprints, she blows things out of proportion and she doesn't always use her name. The next poems I'll read are from the second section of the book, which is called World Enough. Sometimes world too much, huh? <laughs> the first is a poem ending with words from Mandelstam. And it begins with a quote from uh, Epgraf from Mandelstam. I have forgotten the word I wanted to say. We wash our feet and enter the house of prayer where no one is present, no one absent, and where the voices of the beloved are chanting words they do not know and cannot hear. The leaves of autumn have gathered there to listen and to whirl about the floor. It seems that they dance, it seems that they mourn, curled inward as they are, skin and veins grown stiff, and they rustle in the bare breeze, rustle as if to sing along, to summon the unsayable names one by one in the flickering half-light amidst the sacred scents and feverish eyes. 
Beyond the doors, blind swallows pierce the mist and the poem's forgotten word waits beside a river gone dry. Word that asks too little, word that asks too much while waiting for what? Four wheels without a cart, an angel with no form, a prophet with no tongue. Transparent the names, transparent the manes of the horses in the dark. Uh, and this is, that poem was dedicated to Ashraf Fayyad, who was um, another of the many writers imprisoned over the years. Uh, and we were mounting a campaign at the time to um, get him out of prison, which happened eventually, happily. So the next one I'll read is called So Lunar Tables. Pain of the child set afire before blinded eyes, a world's eyes, Poem of the bird exploding in flight in our random skies. Pain of the ladder, its storm-shattered steps defying ascent. Pain of the hunger moon dangling over hoarfrost by a failing thread. Should we cut it for those without bread? Pain of the word, poem of the word unheard, unread. The darkling river and the steadfast ferryman who refuses your coin, the wave that embraces while it destroys, our secret entertainments at the madman's market, and our alphabets without end that spell themselves and weave themselves into a trembling web as the poem road below of silences and stones comes to a final turn. The Massacre of Rocks. It's a history of my love life. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> Massage. <laughs> One, then, then, when I was loving intemperate, loving freely, loving inventing, love for its first time, I took no oaths as seriously as I took imagination to penetrate fog, raising sight to a person to help me invent myself more in the future, a scarlet reception, enthusiastic, guilt-free, musical. I wanted love to look like me from the inside out. I wanted to look more like me by looking outside. I wanted to remind myself to look. I reminded myself constantly of how I looked and looked for constant reminders, a love that needed no naming, no further descriptions. I was its author, its primary reader, name, no need of reminding, I called and I answered. This love without measure was constantly measured, measuring all I imagined. Hard body, soft body, sharp face, chin stubble, chin tickling, wrinkled, smiling, or frowning, a love of extreme insinuation, unreined the brain's desire to be loved for itself. Loving one's beloved thought, hearing it answer yes, even as the eyes of the beloved are fixed overhead. The discovery of love, an original climaxing phantom embered in random sensory touch. Thermals blanket the skin for the night of attainability. I loved the melodies in elbows and knees, collapsing on the bed, breaking the seals on the bottle, spilling the long sought magic beans. 
two. In too deep. Even at the brink, the steep is almost always an accident. Playing at the edge intoxicates, precisely emphatic to be interrogated. Empathy or centrifugal motion varies the flow of blood from old wounds to new pleasures. The way one can grow to like, licking the radiant raises the temperature from the dry, renumbered scale from clitoris to heart. This is a work of falling apart. This is a piece of work. This is the hollow left by reorganized weather. Quotes looking away to love being tied to love, to retie the knots, to love retying the knots, to love or not to be to love being braced for the worst and the worst arriving just as anticipated in a white van with expired plates, to love love's knocks and bruises, Tin Pan Alley contusions, balladic abuses, suspense and Vaseline coated lenses, indemnifying the past regrets, the reign of blue, its spectrum of undying love, the price of love, of loving like that, the king of love, the queen of love, the royalty of love, love's enormous inescapable grip, only a noose could be so tight. Three, fluent. Baby and bathwater have come to an agreement. Rain has made this easy. Time gets the details in order. Clear in the morning, followed by a mix of sun and clouds, such as when you stick to the subject, the verbs appear to disobey, but they follow thought's arrow. They are partner to the breeze. Then love becomes not a destination, but a close reading. I'll read this. Context is all. This me, not that me, that them, no, the other them, that we, or this we, all we, both of them, and all of we, when they're not here, but me, then, before then and before we, when we, how we, when we spoke then, never spoke back to them then. Silent we, resilient we, existed as an existential us, observing with restraint and bemusement, terror a noisy them, childish them. And if we overspoke, we spoke using our bodies to them, head tilted or hand back at them, facing them with all our backs, never breaking face, so masked to all senses of them, all tenses of we, we overprepared. We had better, we had better be better than them. We had better be better beginning and end early and fitful. We had better be better beginning and in the middle too, be better between life and death, better being invisible, better being visible, sure better than them in the places they overlooked than them and their soundtrack. We had better be better than them who draft and redraft themselves. We had better be better being draft selves than them, even if it meant drowning in virtuous poison. This is called Notre Musique, and it's dedicated to a wonderful French poet named Liliane Giraudon, with whom I wrote a, um, I guess you would call it a film script. We collaborated together on a slightly pornographic film script with Emily Dickinson and Antonin Artaud and a few other notable creatures involved in it. And it has not yet been produced. So. <laughs> The night is young. Look for music. 
I imagine the film. It is finally not called Notre Musique after all. I can imagine the film we imagined, though there's nothing strictly speaking that I can imagine. That is to say, I can imagine nothing, but nothing more, or nothing, but nothing else. Once in the library, there was a fire and the books consumed the fire while the authors of the books stood idly by, the authors in eternity among the buried words beneath the pavement, the authors among the flies on a heap of dung in a fallow field, the authors lost at sea in a storm of words, the authors shorn of memory, the authors in rags in a film called Notre Musique, a silent film now playing, almost playing at the Orpheum, or is it the Thalia, the Clio, the Melpomene, or the music hall of vagrant souls, a nameless film of endless length, forbidden by the designated descendants of the prophets, admission free. Well, since we're kind of being Frenchy here, I'll read the next one I'll read is called Nord Sud, North South, which was a um, very notable kind of avant-garde periodical that was uh, edited by uh, the great French poet Pierre Reverdy. And I had been asked to contribute to a magazine that was celebrating some centennial or something of Pierre Reverdy. So, Nordsud. That day, when I thought of Pierre Reverdy for the first and final time, I counted the butterflies in Rome. In Rome, I counted the butterflies. There were always three, three on Trajan's blood-stained column, three within the memoirs of Hadrian, three alight on the virgin's left thigh, three perched amidst the eternal dust. I counted to three because I felt I must. Electric blue were these creatures of air, born of the mind of Pierre Reverdy, mourning the death of a violin by fire. The Tiber is flowing somewhat lazily today, past the distant echo of Pierre Reverdy, past the burning manuscripts of Pierre Reverdy lighting the banks, not of Tiber, but of Seine. I counted the butterflies in Paris then, as they caught fire one by one, one by a lock at the Quai de Valmy, one by the dying guillotine on the Place de la Clochevide where three last songs could be heard. You waved graciously and sang along as poetry, that ballerina in flames bid you farewell while taking one last bow with no regrets other than a few. The earth is perfectly still and the butterflies have ended their day in the north and in the south. Listen, Pierre, the hands on the clock point toward the snows of yesteryear. Pierre, you died as we were about to meet. This poem is to be continued indefinitely. I think we should pause here and, you know, take questions or talk to one another. Okay. It's a lot of poems. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Michael and Erica. That was amazing. I'll be honest with you both. I think everyone in the Zoom window was so enraptured with your reading that they forgot to post any questions. Because this is, uh, oh my God, wow. Um, 
Yeah, well, I'll just uh, uh, ramble a moment. And, and, and for those of you that haven't posted questions, shame on you, post a question. This is your chance to ask anything of these poets. Stretch out a little bit, but um, yeah, this is a happy, happy public day to this book right here, New Directions, man. Can y'all remember the first New Directions book you've ever bought? Can you imagine the book landscape without New Directions? Oh man, mm -hmm. but this is, this is an especially celebratory day. I think my first New Direction book was uh, Jimmy Santiago Bacas. And yeah, yeah, that, I remember, man, New Direction's presente. But let's see, Erica Hunt posted in the comment that she has a question. Yes. Well, Erica, what's, what, what's your question? I want to know, Michael, do you know uh, Edmond Jabez and do you translate him? I knew Edmond very well um, mm -hmm. late in his life, um, was introduced to him probably by Rosemary Walter. Well, everyone I knew knew Edmond in Paris. I translated one very brief thing of his that he wrote about Paul Ceylon, a little mm -hmm. fragment of memoir, but otherwise Rosemary did all the translating. But uh, yes, uh, I would see him whenever I was in Paris. And in fact, he and his wonderful wife stayed with us in San Francisco when he was the only American readings I think he gave, well, maybe in New York as well, I'm not sure, but certainly the only West Coast readings he gave in his life. And at, uh, I believe Stanford and, um, and in Berkeley and then one in the city. He was, Edmond was very pleased because uh, we were driving uh, one evening, possibly to dinner or to one of the readings and he noticed a sign, Eddy Street. And he said, oh, it's wonderful. They've named a street after- After who? After me, Eddie Street. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he was, a, he was a, uh, I must say, someone whom we would have a lot of late night conversations. And I learned an enormous amount about the humility with which you must address the idea of being a poet. And the humility combined with a certain freedom. Edmond became freer and freer as his life proceeded and his, the form of his work opened and opened and opened more and more. Uh, it was quite remarkable. The book becomes the narrative. And so that's what's so wonderful. Yeah. And it becomes the, you know, um, the characters kind of recycled. So Edmond Jabez, can you give a brief bio for some people who may not know who he is? And well, he's a poet who was born in Egypt, as was his wife Arlette. Both from, they were, um, I guess you would say, upper class um, Jewish uh, inhabitants of Cairo. Sephardic Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess Sephardic. Ashkenazi yeah. Europe, Sephardic. And um, they, uh, after the Suez crisis, uh, when um, France and England tried to expropriate the canal, which was a major source of revenue and pride for Egypt, the Egyptians declared that the Jews would have to leave uh, Cairo, Egypt. Um, not all of them had to leave, but many of them had to go into exile. Uh, Edmond and Arlette in particular were from, I think Arlette said her father was a Pasha or something like that. <laughs> anyway, they were prominent, visible um, Egyptian Jews, and they were suddenly forced to leave not so much as a matter of anti-Semitism as a matter of the conflict of, of nationalities and nations, mm -hmm. uh, depending on how you looked at it. 
And Edmond told the story of arriving. He had this incredible library in Egypt, and he had to leave most of it behind, but some he took with him and was able to store. And some of it was then ruined in a flood. Anyway, he was dispossessed of a lot of things, as was Arlette. Arlette was dispossessed of an entire life. But they got to Paris, and Edmond went out for a walk one day, early on in their stay there, and there was a graffiti on the wall in both French and English that said, Jews go home. And Edmond said, well, what, what then is home? And he said, I guess home is the book where all the poets reside. Anyway, they, um, they, they lived modestly. He, he made a living in various ways at different times and um, slowly, slowly began to publish. He wasn't well known until late in his life. Yes. And uh, I remember when- New Directions. Hmm? New Directions. Well, I'm thinking of the French publications, but- um, oh, I'm in English, I mean, the translation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, I remember once I went to Paris and every bookstore had in their window, their vitrine, had this series of interviews with, with Edmond that had been done by this wonderful writer, brilliant writer named Marcel Cohen, who was himself a Jew from Paris, who had been, during the war, had to, he went underground, his mother was uh, sent to the death camps. He saw her being carted away, as the nurse had taken him out into the Parc Monceau. And um, they were coming back from the park, and the nurse saw this, um, paddy wagon pulled up at his house and his mother was brought out and she made a sign, don't say anything. She was taken away. That's Marcel. But the amusing thing is, of course, when I said to, I said to Edmond, your, your face is in every bookstore window. He said, yes, the interviews have outsold all my books combined. <laughs> a wonderful man, wonderful woman, also Arlette, splendid person. Any questions? Any thoughts people have? We have, we have one, one last question from uh, Eleni. Ooh, this is a good gossipy one. Oh. Is, I like it. We can end it on a gossipy note. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Cheesemus. I can't help it. So uh, she would love to hear more about the exchange when Erica was Michael's student. Hmm. <laughs> My whole experience at San Francisco State was a little odd because I was living a very intense poet's life already. And so going to uh, San Francisco, I, I was, I was just, you know, I was steeped. I was going to readings two and three times a week. I, you know, I can't believe how much energy I seem to have had then. <laughs> Where did it go? And then I decided to go back to school. I spent some time at school. So I went, I decided I was going to be a create, you know, major in English, creative writing. And I realized that you know, this happens at times. There wasn't, well, a person who shall remain unnamed, not Michael, <laughs> was doing an individual, an independent study with me with, about uh, Joyce and Lawrence, I think, because they didn't teach Joyce and Lawrence. So it's back in that, those days. And Michael came as a visiting writer and poet, fortunately, in uh, one of the semesters or the year. And and I said, oh, finally a poet to study with because not, there, there wasn't a poet really. Now, as I recall, you know, 
Tom Mandel was the director of the Poetry Center and I worked there as a student assistant. My, my title was Lyric Elenchus, very technical term for, <laughs> for someone who spontaneously spouts poetry. <laughs> and Michael fortunately was teaching living poets because at the time that I attended San Francisco State, that was not the habit, if you can believe it. And what's more, Michael's view of living poets was that you couldn't talk about living poets without talking about the modernists. And so we, we began there and uh, he became someone I could read. I was reading Stein, but it was someone I could discuss Stein with, Stein and Williams and, and uh, Pound and also San Francisco Renaissance poets. That's my recollection. Zukowski too, Zukowski. Well, I mentioned this the other day. I hope I'm not going to embarrass you, but uh, we were having a um, student teacher conference, I guess it was. And um, what a pleasure that was to have with Erica. But I had a revelation there, of a, which was that, first of all, this was the most promising and brightest student I had ever had to that point uh, as a teacher. It, struck me immediately um, that it was right there before her. But it also struck me that the purpose of teaching as such was to learn from people such as Erica. Otherwise, you just had a job. And it's all perfectly good to teach people things as best you can, of course, you want to convey information. But when it's really working, you are the other student in the room. You are in a conversation that is making you better, making you smarter, making you less limited, questioning your own, uh, the limits of your understanding and so on. So that's the most vivid of those things, other than the fact that she was astonishingly informed about a lot of new writing and modernism and Stein and so on that other people knew nothing about at that point or in, those, in that context anyway. That's all I have to say. We talk to each other in the class. We go, well, what do you think? <laughs> oh. Beautiful, beautiful. We all, uh, everybody in the Zoom world, give it up one more time uh, for this beautiful pub date of Little Elegies for Sister Satan, Michael Palmer's new book put out by our amazing, amazing amigos at uh, New Directions. And also Erica Hunt's Jump the Clock, y'all put out by the one and only Nightboat Press. Give it up for them both. Please, a little bit of jazz hands or whatever you want to do. Thank jump you. around, do, do your thing. And remember, uh, if you haven't picked up either one of these beautiful books, there's the uh, links to buy them. Support City Lights any way you can because uh, we ain't going anywhere. We are not going anywhere. And, and we do need your support to keep going. So, um, yeah, uh, God, what an amazing event. And, you know, I mentioned the uh, poetry room upstairs, how much we miss these live events. And as a low-tech person, I can't help but say there's no way we would have fit 79 people into the poetry room upstairs. So it's really wonderful that all of you showed up for this. It's such a beautiful crowd of people. God, I, I want them to keep going, but I think the Zoom world's going to kick us out soon. So Eric or Michael, you got any parting words for the audience? Any new readings coming up soon? You want to mention anything? Willie Mays' 90th birthday is coming up, so we should keep him in mind. Greatest ball player I ever saw. Who's 90th? Willie Mays. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you all so much for being here with us. And, and once again, to Michael Palmer and Erica Hunt, beautiful, beautiful books, beautiful celebration of poetry. City Lights loves y'all. Come okay. see us soon. Thank Keep you. Keep that poetry alive.
Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.